Today is Palm Sunday. And so I want us to picture ourselves 2,000 years ago living in Jerusalem. And you're home one day and you're in your house and a friend comes rushing in. They don't even bother to knock because they're, you know, they're a close friend. And they just, they just come barging in. And they scream out, he's coming. And you think, who? What, what are you talking about? He says, Jesus, he's coming. He's coming into the city. You have to come right now. Okay, fine. So you get your stuff together and you, you walk out. You're trying to keep up with your friend and you're thinking, wow, what's the big deal? So some guy named Jesus and, and it starts going through your mind. Oh, that's that guy that's been through every once in a while. He did some teaching. I heard something about some miracles. And some people are saying he's the Messiah. And your mind kind of wanders as, as a good Jewish person. It would have wandered to Psalm 110 where the psalmist speaks about this coming king who's going to overthrow his enemies. You think, oh, well, that'd be nice. You know, maybe this is the guy. He's going to come in and get rid of these Romans that have taken over our country and our city and, and, and get rid of those. And, and maybe he'll get rid of some of the false teachers and the, the oppressive religious authorities that are over us. And, you know, the land will be cleared of that, all of that garbage. And, and we'll have things the way it was supposed to be. Further down in Psalm 110, it speaks of God making this person a priest forever. Well, maybe that's who he's going to be. Maybe he's going to come in and save us from our sins. Maybe maybe he's going to be the go-between between us and God, and that will all make it all better. So you go out to the entrance of the city, and a crowd is gathered, so you know something big is going on. There's a little murmuring amongst the crowd, little conversations that are going on. Everybody wants to see this person, this Jesus. Some have come from Bethany, this little town just a little ways from Jerusalem, and they've come and you're hearing these incredible stories. They're saying, I was at a funeral. This guy named Lazarus had died. He was in the ground for three days. Jesus shows up, opens the tomb, commands the dead guy to walk out, and guess what? He walked out. I was there. I saw it. And you're thinking, what? Come on. I'm not going to be suckered into this. Other conversations are going on. Other miracles that Jesus had done. Predictions. Different people thinking, oh, this is what he's going to do when he show up. I know it. I've studied. This is what it's going to be. Some think he's that coming king. He's going to make the political situation all right. He's going to make the earthly world all right. All the troubles and trials and tribulations of the culture will go away because the Messiah is coming. Some think, well... He's going to make everything right for me individually and he's going to be my priest and he'll help me out. Some think Jesus is a troublemaker. They don't want him in their city. And you hear the stories throughout the crowd. Oh, I don't know. Things are okay right now. It's not great, but he's going to cause trouble. Everywhere he goes, trouble follows. I just wish he would leave us alone. Others think Jesus is just a flat-out fraud. He's a liar. He's, He's a a peddler of religious ideas. He's just trying to get popular. He's just trying to get power. I don't want him here. He's just a fraud. And you think, wow, a lot of ideas here. And then off in the distance, you see him. It's a guy riding on a donkey. And you're looking and you're thinking, prophet, priest, overthrow the, the rulers of the world, save us from our sins, messianic king. And you're going, yeah, it's a guy on a donkey. You think, what's the big deal? It's just a guy on a donkey. How can it be possibly true for all of these things being said about him to be real and to be true? 
What if at that moment, somebody could hit the pause button on history and just stop time for a second? And as you ask that question, what's the big deal? That somebody, and it would have to be God because only God could do this, could peel back the reality that you're seeing. And all these questions and all the culture and, and all these things that are going on, just peel it right back and you get a picture of eternity. And you get to see once and for all who Jesus Christ truly is. I think that picture would look a lot like the end of Ephesians chapter 1. So open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. At the end of this prayer that we talked about last week, this prayer where Paul is talking about God's plan and God's power at work in his people and praying that they would know that more and more and more. He comes to this aspect of the power of God that he wants them to know and he says that's the power that rose Christ from the dead. But he doesn't stop there. So let's pick up the passage in chapter 1, verse 19, at the end of the verse there. That power, this power that rose Christ from the dead, that power is the same as the, I'm sorry, the power of God. That power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What is the big deal about Jesus? This verse points out three really big deals about Jesus Christ. It says he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. It says he's ruling over all things. And it says he's doing all of this so that he can be at work in the church. You and me, followers of Christ. So let's walk through this and look at each one of these things. And the first thing is the position that Christ is in. He's seated at God's right hand. There's this progression that Paul talks about. This guy that everybody would have looked at when he hung on a Roman cross as an absolute failure. To the Romans, that meant you were the worst of criminals. You must have done something bad, or at least you really made mad the wrong person. And so there you are suffering, and wow, that's really awful for you. To the Jews, it was worse. To the Jewish people, if you were on a cross, you obviously were cursed by God, otherwise you wouldn't be there. So this lowest of the lows... And then Paul says, but God rose him from the grave. And so here we have Jesus that died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He conquers sin and death by rising from the grave. Now we, in our gospel, often we stop there. It's okay. There's a lot of important things there. You're saved by Jesus' death. You're saved by his resurrection. You have new life in him. But Paul keeps going. He says, no, 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 don't stop. There's a lot of other good things about Jesus Christ that is a big deal. And so he goes on. And he says in verse 20, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. A couple things about Christ's position. He's seated. Now you might think, so what? I'm, I'm sitting down. I mean, really, that doesn't make me all that important right now. Well, what does it matter that Jesus is sitting? In Scripture, when somebody does something powerful, 
when a ruler conquers a land, to show that he was done or to declare that he is now ruling over that land, he would sit down. It was an indication that he'd accomplished what he set out to accomplish. It was done. Think of the words of Christ on the cross. It is finished. So he's sitting down. But he's not just sitting anywhere. He's seated in the heavenly realms in the very presence of God. Listen to the words of 1 Kings 22:19. There's so many places in Scripture we could go to for this. But occasionally throughout Scripture, somebody writes something. A prophet, uh, John does this in Revelation. We'll talk about that. But they write a picture of the throne room of heaven. Okay, so 1 Kings 22, verse 19, a prophet says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. So there's God on his throne and he's seated. What's everybody else doing? They're standing. Why? Because God is more powerful than them. God is in authority. They don't have the right to sit in his presence They have to stand as a sign of honor. Another place we see this is in Revelation chapter 4. John sees the throne room of heaven. He sees all these powerful angelic beings. And they're falling down and worshiping God. He sees the elders representing God's people and they're bowing down and worshiping. The only one sitting down in that picture is the one on the throne. Angels. And all the powerful heavenly beings stand or bow in the presence of God Almighty. Jesus Christ sits. Why? Because he's the only one in that picture equal in authority to God the Father. He's the only one that has the right to sit down and to receive the praise and the worship of those that are gathered around And he doesn't just sit anywhere. He's seated at God's right hand. This was a place of honor, but it was also a place of equality. It was this idea of he was ruling with God. There's a lot of popular opinions in the world today about Jesus being one way to God, some way to God, another way to God. Take your pick. Verses like this show that that is absolutely not true. Jesus is the only way to God. Only he has the authority to sit at God's right hand and to rule over heaven and earth. And that's exactly what he's doing. Verse 21 expounds upon this. Talks about what's under his authority, what he has power and dominion over, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We could pick this apart and look at each one of these words. And and That would be an interesting study. It would be really good. I I encourage you to do that. But I want to take that whole phrase together. Because Paul uses that phrase or phrases like it to say very clearly and very simply, there is nothing in this world or in the spiritual world, in the political world, in the economic world, in your personal world, there is nothing that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can come up with as some power or authority anywhere that doesn't fall under that phrase right there. All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, this has special importance in Ephesians. Because here he's saying, this is what Christ is greater than. 
This is the position he has is greater than any of these other things. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Because this phrase, in somewhat different forms, but it comes up two more times in Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 10, he's talking about God's plan. And, and specifically, at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about Paul's purpose or, or Paul's involvement in that plan. And then in verse three or chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He's saying these powerful things in the world that think there's in control, they're in control, these political forces, these spiritual forces, these earthly forces, whatever they are, God holds up his church. And it's like he's saying to those powerful forces of the world, look at what my son Jesus has done. You are nothing compared to this. When he holds up the church, he's not holding up some nebulous thing in history. He's holding up you. He's holding up me. And he's saying, look at what my power has done. I am greater than all these things. But he doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, starting in verse 10, is, is such a popular passage. And it's really powerful. It talks about the armor of God. And it describes us as being under attack constantly. And it says what you need to do is put on this armor of God. And I'm looking forward to covering this with you because it's not about how to argue with somebody. It's not about how to you know, take your Bible and whack somebody over the head. It's about how do you know God so well? How do you know that you're saved by Jesus Christ so much that those attacks are meaningless to you? They don't hurt you because you know who you are in Jesus Christ and that you belong to him. But look in verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. Now think what he's saying there. He's saying, Christian, you're in a battle. It's a very difficult battle. In fact, it's a bigger battle than we understand. We take for granted. We look at our culture. We look at maybe politics. We we look at the way media is going. Oh, as Christians, we're under attack. That's true. But it's more than that. Paul's saying, you don't know the half of it. There's a whole spiritual realm as well. And you're being attacked from there as well, and you don't even know it. You're under attack constantly. So we could read that passage and go, oh, wow, that's really rough. I mean, how do we possibly survive under this whole attack? Listen to what he's saying. The things that are attacking us in chapter 6 are the things that Christ is sovereign over in chapter 1 saying, all these things you think are coming against you, all these things that you feel are threatening to overwhelm you, Christ is powerful over them. He reigns supreme over them. You don't have to be afraid. What if, on that day in Jerusalem, as you stood watching this guy in a donkey walk into the city, what if, as you thought, what's the big deal? What if you had that picture? He's the Son of God. He's in a position of authority over all things. Do you think it would change how you welcome Jesus into your city? What about us today? We have this truth. We know that Jesus was going to the cross. We know he rose from the grave. We have Paul's writings about what that means. We know he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. What difference does it make to us today about the big deal that Jesus is 
in our own lives. But you know, position isn't everything. There are those that are in authority that are really just a figurehead. That maybe you have to say, yes, you're an authority. Maybe you have to pay your respects. But really, you can go on about your way in your day-to-day lives. They're just sort of a figurehead authority. Is Jesus just a figurehead authority? Does he have a position of authority without really having any power? Look at chapter uh, 1, verse 22 at the beginning there where we see Christ rules over all things. Ephesians 1, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet. Just stop there. It's one of those phrases you might read over very quickly and, and miss the depth of what's going on there. All of these rulers, powers, authority, all of these great things throughout all of the world are under the feet of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means for a king to have something under his feet means he not only has a position of authority over those things, he is exercising that authority. He is intimately involved and has power over those things. He knows what's going on. He's already at work in those areas. This is not the picture of a king fretting on his throne, saying, oh my goodness, my kingdom is falling apart. This is a picture of a king perfectly ruling. Christ is powerfully ruling over all things, perfectly in control, perfectly carrying out his perfect plan, powerfully at work, and the very things we fear are so great they will overwhelm us. Think about the things you fear in your own life. Maybe there's situations in your day-to-day life right now that are going on. Maybe there's a work situation or a home situation. Maybe, like many of us, you're worried about our country and what's going on and the craziness of our political process and who's going to be in the White House in November. Maybe you're worried about the economy. All these things that we can worry about, what if we could step back and say, Christ is greater than that? He's already at work in those things, bringing about his perfect plan, even in the midst of the craziness of this world. Do you think we would be able to answer the question, what's the big deal about Jesus Christ? But again, Paul doesn't stop here. When I was a kid, I liked to play with magnifying glasses. Did you ever do this out in the sun? We like to take, uh, my brother liked trick cereal. I don't know why, they're just little balls of sugar. Which I guess is pretty much every kid's cereal, but... And we like to take those out. And, and if you took the magnifying glass, you could focus the sun, right? That's what you do with it. And you could focus the sun on the tricks. And it was awesome because it would just go and it would melt. And you're like, wow, this is cool. We could take leaves and burn holes in them and like, you know, write your name on the pavement with the power of the sun. The magnifying glass took all of that power and focused it. And the thing that it was focused on had an impact. The thing that Paul goes to then is all of this power and authority and position that Jesus Christ has is at work in and through the church. Verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is head over everything for the church. All the power 
All of the authority of Jesus Christ is focused on the church. Now, what do we mean by the church? We can think of the church as some sort of structure, some sort of program, and and we hire people like me, goofy people, to be pastors, and we have volunteer boards, and we have buildings and properties and logos, and now we have websites and all these crazy things. That's not what the church is. Throughout Scripture, the church is the people saved by Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what building you're in. There's nothing more holy about this area than the area outside or across the street or in the town hall or in your home. This is a building, period. This is not a church. You are the church. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, you are the church. And what this passage is saying is all of that power, all of the authority of Jesus Christ is focused on you to save you to change you, and then for you to become a magnifying glass together with the rest of us saved by Jesus Christ so that the world would see Jesus. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As Christians, we like to roll out the caution tape in our lives and and mark off areas. And we say, Jesus, you're not allowed to come here. Oh, everything else is yours. You get this about my life because I want that changed. I don't really like it. But this area, I like that. Don't touch it. It's not how it works. Jesus is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus says, I love you too much to just take a part of you. I love all of you. And the beautiful power of the gospel is that the most dark areas of our lives where we harbor the most guilt and resentment and hurt, Christ can come in with the fullness of his power, the fullness of his authority, and be at work in those areas and change us so that that area that we hope nobody else will see can be the area that God holds up to say, look at what my grace can do. You might be sitting here thinking, God can't do that in my life. You need to know the big, idea about Jesus and the big deal of who he is and what he has been doing throughout all of history. This is not new for the Son of God. This is the Christ, the Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Lord, the Savior that we belong to. That's why I've called this this whole sermon series a new belonging. If we could understand as Christians, we belong to that King, that power, that authority that is greater than anything else that my life, your life, this world can throw at him. What if we really understood that's who we belong to? That would change everything, wouldn't it? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, I think people struggled to see him for who he really is. I think they had their own ideas. I think some of them just wondered, what's the big deal? I think people are still doing that today. And maybe you're here and that's where you're at and you're going, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. I've heard all the stories in Sunday school or or maybe I haven't, but this stuff just sounds weird. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the Son of God with all the authority in heaven and on earth left that throne to come and live among us. And he went to the cross and he took all the darkest worst areas of your life, all the guilt and the suffering and the sin for which we deserve to die, he took all of that and he put it upon himself. 
And he died. And then he didn't stop there. He rose to new life and he promised that new life to all who believe. And he is powerfully at work in those who declare, you are my Lord and my Savior and he will never give up on you. And his power will never fail. That is the big deal. So what about you? How are you going to answer that question in your own life? What's the big deal about Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we become so fearful that we think you can't possibly work in a certain area of our lives or our culture or our world. I feel so often that Paul wanted people to know a big picture of who you are and the power of your Son at work in us who believe. And God, I pray that for the people of Orchard, the people gathered here today. I pray that for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, that we would have a big picture of who Jesus Christ is, that we would understand He is a big deal. In fact, he's not just a big deal. He's the only big deal. Nothing else compares. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can change us. It is the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel at work in those who believe that has the power to save. And then may we become this focal point, this magnifying glass that displays your glory to the world so that they might turn and catch the glint of your power at work in us and say, wow, That is a big deal. I'd like to know this, Jesus. And we could point them to you. In the powerful, authoritative, sovereign name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.